Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is April 2nd of 2014, and tonight our guest is Dr. Catherine Van Warmer, who is a professor of social work at the University of Northern Iowa. She's also written an excellent book, uh, Addiction Treatment, A Strengths Perspective, Uh, She's also got several other books out there, but this is the one we're going to talk about tonight because it focuses on our main topic. Um, Before we start the show, we're going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, uh, Catherine Van Wormer, is with us right now. We're going to bring her on. Hello, Catherine. How are you doing this evening? Uh, Fine. Well, it's great to have you on the show. It's good to be here. Um, Well, let's start with uh, defining some terms. Uh, What is a strength-based approach? What does a strength perspective mean? Well, the strength approach, the way I I look at it in the book, is to um, look at different models from a strengths perspective, but also, of course, in counseling, to be very positive to help people bring out their strengths. And William Miller talks about self-efficacy, helping people say, you say to them such things as, well, you quit smoking for two years. You can do it again. You know, you went uh, abstinent for a certain time. You know, come on. Uh, To help them boost their confidence and to look at their lives, to show the resilience in their lives rather than to maybe focus on periods of victimization and that kind of thing. Because it's known that if you bring out the positives in people, it'll get their spirits up um, and they will feel empowered uh, to make change. And basically with addiction, we're talking about change. But there's another way that's unique to the book that we use the strengths perspective and we look at different models. And instead of always asking the question, that I used to ask, as a sociologist, the question was always, what's wrong with this model? How could you improve it? But we look at the model and look at the strengths. So, for example, of course, we look at the harm reduction model, and we look at the 12-step approach. And even though we're critical of certain aspects of it, we will acknowledge uh, how well it works for some people. And so that is looking the strength, saying, you know, where does it work? What kinds of people does it work with? So it's kind of a double uh, way that we use the, the approach. Mm-hmm. You use a biopsychosocial model. What does that mean? Yes, and we add spirituality to it as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Biology is very important in addiction, and so we had a, have a lot of emphasis I mean, say, when I'm teaching the course on addictions or in, in the book, a lot of emphasis, especially on the brain and the new brain studies that are coming out. Um, and then, you know, we look at uh, also the medications that are used um, 
and that has to do with the neurotransmitters in the brain, getting the juices going. So that's a biological aspect. We look at genetics there, too, how a tendency toward addiction runs in families. And then there's the psychological part of it, how people cope with life and uh, trauma comes in to play there and actually this ties in the two together the biological with the psychological because trauma especially in extreme cases and early childhood trauma we now know actually affects the brain and affects um, the neurotransmitters in the brain and it can lead into depression which can can lead into people using alcohol and other substances uh, for coping with life and stress. Uh, stress comes in there as well, leading in um, to use of these substances. And then there's the social side, you know, family roles, role models, friends, peer groups, uh, influencing people to try uh, different substances, and then some people get addicted to them. And um, we have added on, social workers have added on the spirituality, and this is something people in the 12-step approach, uh, they're very keen on spirituality, looking uh, for a higher power, whether this is in nature or belief in God or whatever, something bigger than, than the self. Mm-hmm. And, and even a sense of meaning, and uh, I remember when I was working with people with alcoholism, sometimes in recovery they would see meaning in the fact that they had ever been alcoholics and they would say, you know, this happened for a reason. And I learned that from them because I was thinking, you really messed <laughs> up your life. You know, it's pretty miserable. Um, you know, you've... you've you know, messed up your children and this and that. I wouldn't say that. That's the opposite of the strengths approach, but I was could kind of see where they might be depressed and distressed looking looking at their lives. And instead, they would say, you know, this happened for a, me- a reason. So I learned from them, and I'd say, oh, what was the reason? They'd say well, something like, so I could understand the suffering in the world, so I could understand... Um, better about addiction or alcoholism and so I could help other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a very healthy uh, way to look at it. Mm-hmm. Do you find a lot of people, uh, they're self-blaming when they have addictions and it just kind of makes it worse and they self-medicate and self-blame and self-medicate? Yeah, see, they can be too much guilt feeling or they could almost be too little. Um when I worked in, in America, in Washington State, well, some of our clients, I thought, they, you know, needed to take responsibility for their lives. They needed to, mm-hmm. you know, not have guilt because that's negative, but, you know, just a sense of responsibility. Um, but in Norway, uh, people were so plagued with guilt. The people who I worked with in the country of Norway, um, I went there to bring the Minnesota model to Norway uh, with other Americans, and this was something during during a limited period of time in the 1980s, where they brought Americans over to Norway, and so I was very lucky to get in on that program. I mean, because I wanted to live in Norway, you know, so it was 
pretty mm-hmm. exciting for me. But we found out that the disease model was very helpful to them, and I would tell them things. That was the disease doing that. They had never heard of the disease model, and um, mm-hmm. and the biological aspect, uh, you know, of alcoholism. So that was extremely helpful there. And mm-hmm. and the guilt, well, we had to work a whole lot on, on their guilt feelings. And I was thinking there, oh, gosh, some of the Americans, they were maybe not quite psychopaths, but the antisocial personality would come up quite a bit with some of the hard drugs. And there were people mm-hmm. who just didn't really care about other people and didn't really have empathy for other people. But I didn't see that type in Norway for some reason. And there it was always try to help them live with themselves. And when they could do that, it, it worked very well for them. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned uh, the Minnesota model and the 12 steps. And I understand that you were originally uh, coming out of that model. And uh, then you uh, came to learn about harm reduction and, uh, you know, kind of transformed your approach. So how did that come about? Well, actually, it was sort of roundabout because when I was in Washington State, we didn't use the 12-step approach. We used a cognitive approach. We helped people work on their feelings. And we would just send them. Uh, it was even court-ordered, although it should not be for legal reasons, but they would have to attend 200 AA meetings over a two-year period, and then we would just get them to have a card they would sign, and we didn't do anything with the 12 steps. Then I happened to be in Minnesota, and I saw a job ad that said, bring the Minnesota model to Norway. They were hiring Americans. I thought, wow. But I didn't know what the Minnesota model was. So I went over to Norway without still not knowing. I asked people in Minnesota. They said they never heard of it. It's really just a 12-step approach. But it got called in some places the Minnesota model because it started there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it didn't. That I mean, Alcoholics Anonymous okay. didn't start there, but they started there with treatment. And so, mm-hmm. so I Hazel went to Hazel. Norway, and it was total abstinence. And so I kind of believe that well, these people once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Um, but there were other models in Norway, and we would see on TV they had a psychologist teaching people to drink. I remember we all laughed our heads off. We said, oh, that's just going to lead into drunkenness. Um, but then I, when I came back to America, we, we had an exchange with Britain, and uh, the professors would come back here, and we'd go over there. And I learned a lot uh, about harm reduction from them, and politically it just really fit in with my beliefs. Um, and, and, so, and then you can look at the science and you can see that some people can become moderate drinkers. And now um, the government agencies recognize this now, um, that, because science shows us that. And then some other people, they just cannot have that control over alcohol. And they do a lot better just to never drink again. And so you, so we ought to be more open-minded about it. And the treatment centers, we shouldn't have all this total abstinence because 
you don't so you get a different kind of clientele that way. You get people who are court ordered only coming in for treatment. That's basically what you get, and the teenagers don't want to go in for treatment. Whereas the British model, the and this harm reduction model, they come in there and they talk to the counselor and and they talk about cutting back, maybe exchanging one kind of drug for another kind of drug that wouldn't be as harmful for them. And even to a point, if they're heroin addicts, that a doctor could prescribe the heroin for them. Mm-hmm. And actually, as a sociologist, I had learned all about this a long t- time ago, um, and I was always attracted to it, to the to this model of not punishing people but treating them as you know the addicted people that they were and helping them medically through a public health model rather than the punitive model that we apply and we still apply that in our treatment centers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the United States is very punitive. I mean, you know, abstinence can can be a great solution for those that achieve it, for but for those that aren't succeeding, you want to keep them safe and alive first, I would think. That's right. And uh, I can tell you about... Now, it is practiced in the United States in the big cities with homeless people, the Housing First uh, programs, and they mm-hmm. are really catching on in our cities. Because, and this has to do with empirically-based research. Mm-hmm. See, what they would do is um, the government and um, the cities would take people who were homeless and they also were drug addicts and alcoholics and they had other problems. And they would say that they'd have to get off the drugs, they'd have to get off the alcohol, and as long as they were sober, they could have housing. But if they got to drinking again, if they had a relapse or just drank willingly, they'd be kicked out. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it was found out that that didn't work because they'd go back to drinking and then they would lose their housing. So they tried these programs where they could continue to drink, and they were told, they were recruited from the streets and told, now you mm-hmm. can have this apartment and we don't want any drug dealing going on in the place, but you can continue the life that you're living and you will have a roof over your head and, and you can come into counseling uh, the ones with mental disorders, they got them on SSI if they weren't already. And part of that was, you know, to pay toward the rent. And then part of it, they would have some spending money. So they worked it out. And um, in Seattle, it's through DESC, Downtown Emergency mm-hmm. uh, Services Center. And you can go on... Uh, Google, and you can just type that in, D-E-S-C, on the website, and they have all these studies there, research studies that that have been done, showing how well it works. And the interesting thing is they cut down their drinking and their other Mm -hmm. drug use Mm -hmm. when they have the housing because they have stability. And with a stable life and a roof over their heads, the stress is reduced, and we know if you reduce stress, uh, the drinking would be reduced. And mm-hmm. so that, so the success of the programs has led to Portland and other cities um, to establish now these housing-first programs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And I that just is want to karma mention, dust. Mm-hmm. I just want to yes. mention for our listeners, if you want to look in the archive of the shows, uh, we have interviewed in the past uh, Dr. Susan Collins from Seattle, who is doing the research on the wet housing project in Seattle that uh, uh, Dr. Van, Van Warmer just mentioned. And we've also uh, interviewed uh, Dr. Sam Semberis, who is the uh, original pioneer of the harm reduction housing, the housing first approach. So you can check out those episodes in our archive. And I want to go on, and uh, I, I know in your book you've got this little table here of comparative approaches to addiction where you compare the traditional counseling approach with the strength-based therapy. And can you tell me what some of the differences are between the two? Uh, yes, well, it was tradi- the traditional treatment, and this is the one actually that was transported to Norway, uh, by these Americans was this harsh confrontational approach. And now the treatment centers are getting away from that, uh, but that is the tradition, and it's so uh, different from the strengths perspective. I mean, they would humiliate them. Humiliation was a part of it. When I got here to Iowa, I found the treatment centers were doing things like they had a lot of inpatient treatment. They'd make them stay dressed in their pajamas all day, and they'd say, you can get dressed uh, when you work on these issues. And the issues were all this kind of self-disclosure that they would have to do. They were expected to cry in the group, men and women both, you know. they just pour it all out. Uh, it was thought that they could pour out those bad feelings. Um and so it was a terrible ordeal for people going into treatment. One thing I know they did in Des Moines at a treatment center, if somebody acted babyish, they would have to wear a pacifier around their necks to show to everybody that they're just a big baby. You know, it's it's just hard mm-hmm. to believe. That's the tradition now. They don't do that anymore. They're afraid of lawsuits, for one thing. And there's a new model, uh, the motivational interviewing, or motivational enhancement treatment. Um, uh, this is really popular now, and and so. But on the you know to just compare the two, um, say families. Um, the traditional approach is to look at family dysfunctions, mm-hmm. and there was a whole lot of that. Even when I was doing treatment in Washington State, um, just looking at the negatives in the family, the roles that people played and different names for the children in what they called the alcoholic home. And these mm-hmm. are all really negative terms, codependency, a very negative term, the way that caught on and the way it was used to label people as having all these symptoms and problems. And then the opposite of that is to look um, for the strengths of the family and the resilience um and a lot of positive things in in people's families. Uh, so those are mm-hmm. uh, some of the differences that I can think, you know, between the two. And harm reduction fits in very well with the strengths perspective because it's meeting the client where the client is and then helping the client make the change, but it has to do with el- eliciting these responses from from the client. Um Mm-hmm. wanting to change 
And so what they do is, uh, you know, it starts out, maybe they have to do an assessment because that's required, but the counselor, according to this approach, will look at the assessment and say, well, let's see if this applies to you or not. And a person will look at it and say, oh, yeah, that describes me to a T, but it has to come from the individual. And if they say, that's not me at all, then the counselor goes along with that and says, well, maybe this isn't correct. You know, maybe you really don't have any problems. So you elicit the responses there. You you get the individual to to say, well, I really do need to do something about the way my life is going. And it's found to be much more psychologically effective than just telling mm-hmm. them, you know, you're in denial. Uh, that's what the traditional model would say. You're in denial, denial, and we're going to break through your denial and force it out of you if we have to humiliate you in a group or whatever. And this way you just take the lead from them. And they go through certain stages, you know, like the pre-contemplation stage when they're not ready to even think about changing as they move through to contemplate change and on preparing for the change. Mm-hmm. And this is the approach that's come to America, but the problem with the treatment center is they're answering to the courts, and they have to show this total abstinence. And so they're doing a lot of urinalysis tests, the UAs. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought, well, this just contradicts the whole thing of motivational interviewing. So I contacted William Miller, and I asked him about that. I said, well, you know, here they are. They're not, you're supposed to trust people and build up trust and rapport, and then you're doing some kind of a test, a humiliating test of the urinalysis test, and they're doing this every week, every few days. Uh, and I said, well, you know, how do you reconcile that with the model? And then he wrote back and said he agreed it didn't fit in, and he said that they would just let some other agency worry about that, that the counselor wouldn't have anything to do with that. But still, you know, the agency is watching over people and enforcing total abstinence on the people. So that's not really motivational interviewing, in my Mm -hmm. opinion. And it's certainly Mm -hmm. not harm reduction. So, you know, how are we going to attract clients who just come in the door and say, I need to talk to someone? Uh, they don't come in because they say, oh, you go there, they're going to be doing UAs on you and they're going to be putting you in a group and there will be, you know, you'll have to quit this and quit that and, you know, you can't smoke marijuana anymore even if that's not a big problem and you can't drink. You know, it's just a whole lot of restrictions right away immediately rather than gradual change. So people are not going to come into most of these treatment centers. They might go to a mental health center and try to get somebody there um, to talk to, but mm-hmm. they're not going to go to substance abuse treatment. Mm-hmm. That's a huge problem, too, because uh, people in mental health centers are trained to refer anyone with a substance problem to substance abuse treatment and not give them mental health treatment. Well, yeah. I mean, that's a very negative thing. I was doing an internship at a mental health center, and, uh, I mean, we just, I mean, I just went right into trying to help them. Uh, 
to see how far they could go toward getting off, let's say, drinking and changing their habits. Uh, but you're right. There's a referral, and you're trained to refer them to a specialized agency, and then they get into, um, you know, all these things that are uncomfortable for them. If they're not court-ordered, they're not going to go through that. It can become yeah, like an ordeal, mm-hmm. I think, in my opinion. I mean, see, I like it the way I was hearing in the U.K., in northern England, for example, they could come in. They had little places just on the streets where there's a whole um, high percentage of drug users. And they would just pop in. They wouldn't even have to give their real names. They didn't have to fill out forms. And they would say, I need some help. I'm getting out of control with this, say, heroin, for example. And they would, the client would, would show the initiative here. And they'd get a tremendous amount of support. Well, could you imagine that happening here? You know, the first thing you say, well, first you've got to get off everything before you can come to treatment. And and that would be like going to a doctor when you have a disease, and they say, well, first you have to get well before, you know, we can treat you. um, (laughs) You know, it's really strange the way we do this in in America. It is. It's not really the fault of the individual counselors because they're stuck in the system of, where do they get their clients? It's, they're coming from the courts and from DHS, Child Protective Services. They're you know, at risk of losing custody of their children. That brings them in. Um, mm-hmm. And so you get a different kind of clientele than they have in Britain, for example. I mean, they have people who are motivated to come to treatment in Britain, whereas these people are court-ordered and they... You know, there's hardly anybody. They'll tell you people who are contributing. There's hardly anybody's motivated. Well, of course they're not. If they're motivated, they're not going to come into the treatment center because it can become very stressful for them. Mm-hmm. I'm taking a course right now at the new school. Uh, one of the courses I'm taking is ethics. It's uh, the APA ethics code. And we're being told by our textbook that it is unethical for us to treat substance users because we're not substance abuse specialists, and it, the only ethical thing is to refer them. Of course, oh. I'm sitting there in class saying, Ooh. no, it's, unethic- <laughs> it's unethical to send them to those horrible substance abuse places where they're going to get tortured, or at least, I mean, most well, of those. actually, the treatment centers, they're not like that, <laughs> but because they've really modernized, uh, and they're, you know, following William Miller. So, but still, you're going to lose them. You're going to lose them because they're, you know, they're not ready to stop everything, all their advices all at once. Um, oh, tell me again about this, uh, where you, uh, where this code of ethics says that. What is that code of ethics? Is that the uh, American Correctional Association or what? It is uh, the APA, the American Psychological Association. Oh. I'm not certain uh, I, because the the passage I'm thinking about is in our textbook, which is written by yeah. Thomas Nagy. And All it right. says, he's got an example there of a, of a uh, psychologist that tried to treat a substance user and the user uh, left the psychological treatment and said, I'm not getting anything out of this. And he, he says, well, this was unethical. They should have been referred to a substance abuse specialist or to a treatment facility. 
Uh, well, it kind of fits in with codes of ethics because the codes of ethics say you have to have competence in your I field do. and you yeah. have to be a specialist. Um, I understand the point he's bringing across, but um, you know I don't agree. Well, there's too many substance abuse treatment facilities that just say you know total abstinence is the only thing. If you relapse, you're kicked right. out. And, that's right. Uh, uh-huh. Most of them, I don't have much respect for most substance abuse treatment facilities. There mm-hmm. are exceptions out there. There are some very good ones, but the majority I don't care for at all. Yeah, well, we have some excellent ones in this area, but I just feel like they're constrained because of the model that's being used, and it all has to do with, yeah, the total abstinence model. And when I yes, talk to the them, model. I mean, they're good people. We prepare our students. A lot of them are social workers, and they have good counseling uh-huh. skills. But there's no place for people who are kind of in between and, you know, thinking about changing or self-motivated people. They're they're not going to go there. So you shouldn't refer them. And the latest trend is, of course, what they call the dual, to work with people, the dual diagnosis, and now they call it the co-occurring disorders where they have, you know, mental disorder and then they have a substance abuse disorder. So they come into a mental health setting and the trend is you have to treat them right there, that there's no wrong door. That's the exact term that's used. So your textbook is wrong because you have to treat them because you will lose them if you refer them anyplace else. You know, they come in. You've got to start working with them right then. And the mental health center has a real advantage because it's less stigmatized, really, than going to a substance abuse treatment center. And people don't recognize that that's something, you know, too much alcohol and the drugs are destroying their lives. They have to work, you know, they're going to work on their depression and uh, maybe some of the effects of, of the drug they're using, and so they'll go to a mental health center, talk to a psychologist perhaps, and, yeah, that. so absolutely, you know, mm-hmm. don't refer them. But here we have, no, they're trying to join the agencies together, like in one building anyway, where the mental mm-hmm. health and the substance abuse are together. But it should really be one person, and they like people with a master's in social work with some background in working with people with the mental disorders and then also the substance abuse training. And so mm-hmm. one person will handle these situations because they go together. Mm-hmm. Well, we're fortunate in uh, New York City that uh, we have a lot of the needle exchange programs have social workers who will do harm reduction therapy with the clients that are seeking it. So uh, mm-hmm. for heroin users, they can, uh, you know, talk to these, they can talk to a harm reduction therapist and they can talk about maybe I want to quit heroin, but I want to smoke marijuana. Um, and, you know, they, yeah. it's okay. But, that's perfect. You know, mm-hmm. It's, it's yeah, hard to find. Yeah, that is a harm reduction like, model, and that's going to save lives right there. Mm-hmm. It's just you can't find this everywhere in the country. In fact, not too many places. San Francisco, New York City, maybe Los Angeles. Uh, but lots of places, it's, much, it's, it's just not available. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's certainly not here. Um, you know, they're good people. 
doing the work, but oh. uh, it's from a different model, really, than a harm reduction model. And in fact, I teach, you know, in the book, they learn about harm reduction, they learn about motivational interviewing, that's okay. But when they go for the interviews to do their internships, they have to shut up and not say anything about harm reduction. And then they're asked at one place, do you believe in harm reduction? And they have to say no. And, you know, harm reduction means reducing the harm. I mean, that's what it is, reducing the harm. And then they have to say if they're going to get taken on, they have to act like, oh, they're very dubious of that. You know, teaching people to drink is what is implied. Mm-hmm. But even total abstinence is harm reduction. But by mm-hmm, what the mm-hmm. term is, it's reducing the harm to them. So that's, but it's taken on, you know, it has these connotations that it's, you know, radical or getting the agency in trouble or something like that, giving people bad well, advice. Well, it's interesting. The traditional model uh, teaches that you have to hit bottom. And, you know, my experience is if you start to question uh, the 12 steps, wait a minute, I don't believe in God. Oh, you need to go out and drink more and suffer more. When you hit bottom, you'll come crawling back on your knees. I mean, uh, suffering more, drinking more, that's, that's, not the, that's not the right advice to give people. Oh, well, you know, now that you mention that, that's very interesting about the 12 steps. I decided uh, for the book I wanted to rewrite the 12 steps. Now, you know that's considered, <laughs> it's like sacrilegious or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And so I was on a listserv of counselors who were of 12-step approach, and I wrote on there to test it out. And, oh, I got the most hostile responses. They said, would you rewrite the Ten Commandments? And I thought, well, that's funny because we have all these different versions of the Bible and you can, you know, rewrite the Bible and change the language. Mm-hmm. And all that's all I wanted to do was to change the language. And just because I like the 12 steps, they have a nice rhythm to them. They, they go, they come from, of course, a religious order. And mm-hmm. um, then they were ad- uh, adopted, but they are useful just for lots of things in life. But mm-hmm. um, instead of higher power, it's also God. And it's the masculine, God as we understood him. And so a lot of feminists object to that. Atheists don't want the God in there, or Buddhists don't want the God in there. Um, So I just changed it. Uh, If anyone wants to see that, they can go to my website, because the co-author thought it was too controversial. And it belongs Mm -hmm. in her chapter, and every time I put it in her chapter, she'd pull it out. Um, Because she's, you know, very much of a 12-step person, even though she also loves harm reduction. So she would just, you know, I said, well, could you just refer to my website and say that it had been rewritten? But see, she knew what the response would be, and she didn't want to put it in there. And so it is on my website. The website is just Catherine Van Warmer, as one word, dot com. And then you can go in there and you can see the nine, the nine, um, you know, the 12 steps, the nine steps. It came out to nine because when I took out the negative ones, then there were nine. I took out the making amends, although I have some doubts about that. That really, in some cases, is a good thing. But I changed, mm-hmm. it starts out with we admitted. And it was a Norwegian who pointed out to me 
said, why? That's a negative word to admit. It's like admit, admitted a crime or something, you know. We admitted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so instead of that, I changed it to acknowledged. Mm-hmm. We were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. See, that's true. That's a good step. And uh, mm-hmm. so I just changed. I mean, it was just some minor changes and cut out a few. And then I had a nice balance. It sounded good. But I haven't been able to use it anywhere. Oh, I did write to the headquarters of AA and ask them if I could <laughs> help them change it, you know, uh, because it's so easy mm-hmm. just to modernize the language for today's world mm-hmm. and for the young people today. And, um, oh, boy, you know, they were furious. Um, so anyway, we didn't get it in, in the book because the two of us would have to agree, and it was her chapter where I wanted to put it. Um, and I didn't want to make her mad, and she's a tremendous writer and very flexible, but, you know, nobody wants to change. You know, they just know that it's just considered something that you don't do, and they're all taught that. Don't let anybody mess with it. But, you know, quietly, some places like Hazleton, I was told, they have taken out God and they just put higher power mm-hmm. in there instead of God, and they just don't ask for permission. They just slip it in there because that avoids a whole lot of problems. Now, mm-hmm. the Supreme Court ruled that um, AA was religious, but mm-hmm. they will tell you it's spiritual, and I think it really is spiritual. But they say the Lord's Prayer in America in most of the meetings. After the meeting, they stand up and hold hands and they say the Lord's Prayer. So that, you know, would lead people to think it's a religious group. In Ireland, I understand they do the Lord's Prayer, but in the United Kingdom, they don't do the Lord's Prayer after the meeting. Uh, but so the Supreme Court, that's uh, the reason some of the prisons, actually they changed their treatment and took it away from the 12-step approach because mm-hmm. of what the Supreme Court said, separation of church and state. But, you know, all they had to do was offer some options. And if they had mm-hmm. different programs in there, one was cognitive and one was 12-step, that would have been fine. They just had to have some options. And they did, mm-hmm. so they took it out. But they still have the people come from AA in the evening, and they have their AA meetings. But the counselors have been told, for the most part, you know, don't do the 12 steps, which could be a mistake mm-hmm. because a lot of people, they want the structure, and I found that with the newly sober people coming in to abstain, I mean, it seemed to be good for them to go to these meetings and to get that support. So it can work very well. You just don't want to force it on people. Well, some people like it. I mean, uh, I have a lot of colleagues in Needle Exchange that are members of Narcotics Anonymous, so yeah. I don't have any, I don't have any fights mm-hmm. with them. Uh, for me, it was just the totally, totally the wrong thing uh, to be told that I was powerless and uh, alcohol was powerful. You know, when I started attending AA meetings, I was abstaining from alcohol, but hearing this message pounded into my head, you know, every time I went there, alcohol is powerful, you are powerless. By the time I left AA, I was drinking a liter of whiskey per day, and I had Mm -hmm. to check in and get detoxed. This is not a message 
that is good for my brain. My subconscious just takes this literally. And my subconscious doesn't believe that there's any God that cures diseases. So I'm just kind of screwed there uh, with uh, this alcohol that has all the power and I don't have any. I had to get yeah, away from that message. Simplistic. It's it's. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like a brainwashing type of thing, and everybody has to believe exactly the same thing. And then they chant certain phrases. Some are helpful, but it makes it sound like a cult or something. And so some people who are like myself, the more creative types, um, who think a lot, maybe think too much, you feel uncomfortable, <laughs> you know, with all that. It's too <laughs> simple. But um you know, a lot of my clients, I, I have to say, it just seemed to be where they were, and I couldn't always work with them very well because they were very, very rigid. Mm-hmm. And they would, you know, like to follow that, and it just seemed to be the only thing that would work for them. But I would try to get another counselor with, with those types. It's like the authoritarian personality, mm-hmm. and they couldn't handle flexibility, you know, at all. Mm-hmm. They just had to have, they were very concrete in their thinking. Uh, and then others, I know, they've been more creative, but but they will interpret it in a more flexible way than the way that it's maybe being told to them. They'll say, oh, but it's really a higher power. You know, they really don't mean this. Now, you know, one issue is how about medications? Medications are being used a lot today. Uh, doctors are prescribing you know, medicines to reduce the craving for drugs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And AA has historically been totally against that. And if somebody's on Prozac for depression, you know, they say get off all mood-altering drugs. But today they are more flexible now in places like Hazleton Treatment Center. Um, they're experimenting right there with these medications with their clients and so on. So that's a big change we're seeing today. I mean, mm-hmm. get off smoking, take Chantix, and, you know, mm-hmm. they're using all these drugs that have to do with the neurotransmitters in the brain to try to reduce the cravings. Some work, some don't work so well, but, uh, you know, traditionally AA just said get off even antipsychotic uh, drugs. And then they had people with schizophrenia going to them and were told to get off these drugs, and they did, and uh, that had very negative consequences. Well, it was really, I mean, it's really interesting that uh, AA was, you know, no Prozac, uh, no uh, psych drugs, but nicotine, caffeine, smoke yourself to death. All the caffeine you want, that's great. There was so much smoke in the place, you could hardly see. I know. And now they have a lot more of these non-smoking AA meetings, but they have a whole lot of them where they're smoking. And see, we were told in treatment, you could only, you had to let them smoke, but they had to get off everything else, you know, any, you know, marijuana, alcohol, everything, total abstinence, but don't touch the cigarettes because it was thought if you told them to get off that, that they would get drunk right away. They just couldn't handle it because this is one of the strongest addictions there is. But then some of the treatment centers are uh, requiring them to get off all, you know, get off all these substances. And it seemed to work well because cigarettes went with the drinking. And by association, it was making them want to drink if they were smoking. And so um, so now they're tr- they're saying this is an addiction. 
and and the counselors he have really changed. It used to be all the counselors were smokers virtually, uh, because they were in recovery, and they would uh, smoke together, like in one room, and then people like myself would be in another place to get away from the tobacco smoke, and they would even smoke uh, early in the early days in in their group sessions. And the rooms, you oh, could yeah. tell, uh, it just destroyed the rooms, the ceiling, everything was just, you know, they had to redo the whole, everything, the paint and everything else after people had smoked in there. In Norway, it was terrible in the 1980s. Now it's changed in Norway, too, because public health, they know this is putting everybody at risk, secondhand smoke, if nothing else. Mm-hmm. Um but I had a terrible time with that tobacco smoke when I was trying to do treatment. I would just be coughing, and some days I just wouldn't even go down there where the clients were because they'd have a break, and then they'd all be smoking, and it would come up the steps where my office was, and I'd have to sit in there with the door shut. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, the, the first time I went through treatment, and it was actually kind of a different treatment because it mixed up uh, 12-step and cognitive behavioral. So it was, there was good things about it. But my counselor, I remember, would always say, uh, let's have group outside today so we can all smoke, you know. Yeah, yeah. And now the counselors are sort of in trouble now. And you see them hiding out the back of the treatment centers. And when they hired people, today they hire non-smokers. They favor the non-smokers, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. because you don't see all those smokers now. But at first, they started enforcing, uh, well, the rules about secondhand smoke, and then you would see the counselors hiding in the back so they wouldn't make a bad example uh, for the clients. And uh, so times have really changed. I mean, I know people would turn down for jobs as counselors because they didn't smoke. And they made some kind of reference to reference to good health for counselors, and they didn't even get a second interview after that because you were not well, one I, of them. You were not in mm-hmm. recovery. Well, it would be nice if we could, you know, uh, meet people where they are at, and if you want to uh, quit drinking and not quit smoking right now, that's okay. If you want to quit smoking and not quit drinking, that's good. If you want to quit heroin but not marijuana, you know, and, you know, meet people at the change they want to make now instead of trying to say, okay, if you're going to stop drinking, you have to also stop smoking, no marijuana, none of this, none of that. You know, that's so authoritarian. That's right. You have to say, what do you want to work on with me? You know, you're going to come in here, say, once a week. Or, you know, what would, would help you? What can I help you with? And they'll say, well, this I'm in trouble with this, but I'm not in trouble with that. Um and you say, fine, you know, and then you help them. Well, let, I want to get a little bit back to the main topic, which is strengths-based. And what are some techniques that we can do to help people build up their strengths? Um, well, it's really the questions you ask. Like they will uh, work on their biography, perhaps. You'll have them tell about themselves and the story. And then you're just naturally... If you follow this approach, you know, you just naturally reinforce, oh, wow, you know, you were 10 years old and you were taking care of your little sister. 
you know, you reinforce uh, these positives that come up in their lives. Um, and so it's just all the way through, just easy to focus on the pos- positive things rather than the negative things, but it's not to deny their feelings, but to help mm-hmm. them see that they have strengths and that mm-hmm. they can draw on these strengths to help them in recovery. And so that's mm-hmm. uh, just basically it. Sure. And you, you know, one thing I wanted fish. to talk about, uh, I wanted to talk ahead, about something we hadn't talked about, and I saw on your website you had interviewed Stanton Peel, um, yes. and he came uh, out, is that true? No. I saw I thought I saw his name there. But anyway, yeah, he came have, out. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, he came out with this book, uh, Addiction Proof Your Child. Yes. And I was really excited because he was on TV, and this has to do with the under-21 drinking laws, which I'm very much opposed to. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I'm also opposed the way the way statistics are used to make it look like, oh, these laws are changing lives. And if you go on Google, you'll see that. It's coming from Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Now, they've done a lot of good, but they're mm-hmm. not using the statistics right, and then others are following them, and then they're quoting these, and it will show you how the car crashes have gone down over the years since the 1980s when these laws were mm-hmm. passed. But it doesn't take into account seat belts, designated drivers um, that we have, and all this emphasis on not driving drunk. Um, mm-hmm. So there are a whole lot of factors there. It also doesn't take into account that the deaths by car crashes also went down for the over 21s. If you take t- age 21 to 24, it went way down for them too. Mm-hmm. And so they're just taken totally out of context, and hardly anybody seems to be using them in the right way. And I got the statistics right off uh, their website, and I looked at the dates and all and the age groups and said, wait a minute, you know. Um, anyway, so we have this tremendous binge drinking problem. In Iowa, it's uh, an incredible problem. And this mm-hmm. is causing actually over a thousand deaths of college students just based on their binge drinking. They're not necessarily mm-hmm. alcoholics; they just get drunk mm-hmm. uh, deliberately get drunk and get into trouble. They drown, they get in car crashes, they shoot themselves accidentally uh take mm-hmm. an overdose with another drug uh, so anyway, I just wanted to point out that harm reduction would be to help children and Stanton Peel. I pointed this out in his book, and so I was really pleased with that. Addiction-proof your child. It was how you bring them up to drinking moderately, drinking at meals, drinking with the family. And drinking Mm -hmm. at parties could be a part of that, too, with adult supervision. Adults now, you know, are not going to go to a party with drinking kids. I mean, the next step Mm -hmm. would be to go to jail. um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, so our society has to do something. I mean, this is a real crisis for America is all these kids going out there getting drunk. I mean, here it's Thursday night because they go home on the weekends, I guess. So somehow Thursday night is the big, big night for them. The bars close at 2 o'clock. And on their 21st birthday, some are almost killed with overdoses because they're not used to drinking, they have no tolerance, and then they can get um, 
real low prices with their groups of people going around and getting free drinks on their birthday. So they go to one bar and get a free drink and another bar a free drink. And uh, and uh, students have told me they've ended up in the hospital after the, after this partying goes on. It's been encouraged by the bars even. They advertise mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is a sickness in our society. And to say that, and they always say you have to enforce the laws. Mm. And they think that you could keep these students from drinking until they're 21 years old. And, of course, everyone tells you about how they get with their friends in high school and even before, drink very heavily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I just want to bring that up with harm reduction. You know, we often don't talk about those laws. That's that's a form of prohibition, and we know prohibition yes. didn't work. Yes, I remember before the uh, the federal twenty one year old drinking age. Oh, yeah, I did and, too. Uh, a lot of people, uh, you know, younger people are aware of the reality that. Uh, drinking age used to be established by state law. So one state yeah. would be 18, the next state would be 21. Wisconsin, uh-huh. where I'm from, was 18. Minnesota was 21. Uh, everybody in Minnesota, when they got to, the, to their 18th birthday, they drove to Wisconsin, got as drunk as possible, drove back oh. home. That mm. was a really bad idea to have the state's decide different ages for everybody. That that costs yeah. a lot of drunk driving. Yeah, but instead that's of right. going up instead of going up to twenty one, they should have gone down to eighteen is my opinion. Or maybe sixteen. You know, I got the people were arguing and they had a good point there. Uh, in the high schools the eighteen year olds are gonna get the drinks and serve to the others. So maybe it just ought to be sixteen and not have the eighteen you know, make it down, mm-hmm. and the psychology professor here says you just shouldn't have an age limit at all. In Louisiana, I don't think we had any age limit. Nobody ever mentioned anything about that. You know, it would be when you were uh, about 15 or 16. Anyway, you would be expected to drink some wine. That was the French tr- tradition. I remember my mother telling me that we were going to go to these people's home and they were in the French tradition and so I would have to drink a little wine and I was furious and said I didn't want to drink anything and we got into an argument I mean you just couldn't imagine that in Iowa you know the parents saying now you've got to be polite and just take a little bit and uh, parents would take us out um, for meals uh, that was when I was 16 at school I would take the class out and then we would order drinks we were expected to order drinks um, with mm-hmm. the parents there. And it, and then, well, actually, I remember in college, you would have lots of parties, and there would be drinks there, but they weren't drinking parties. And you would have the faculty and the students together. And the interesting thing is later, when we talked about somebody getting drunk, it was usually a faculty member would say, did you see Dr. Donsero? Oh, boy, he... You know, he really had too much to drink. You know, the students would be the more sober ones, and then there would be some faculty person who maybe had a little too much. But other faculty could have provided some supervision if a student 
had drunk too much and was lying unconscious on the floor. You know, you would have people of all ages there, and you'd have some sober role models. And today, the kids go off and drink, and they're not going to have any adults, more mature people there with them. And the fraternities mm-hmm. do the mm-hmm. same way because they could be liable to arrest, and so they're not going to go to those parties or have anything to do with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, it's going to take really something to change our culture, and it won't change right away. Mm-hmm. Certainly, you know, we need to, at least the laws are not working, so you don't have laws punishing people if the laws are not working. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you have these rules that you can't have alcohol in your dorm room when you're under 21, what do you do? You get as drunk as possible before you come back home. That's not the way to do it. No. Uh-uh. Yeah. And then you do, you have to drink in a, a shorter period of time, too, because you can't store mm-hmm. it. So you would mm-hmm. tend to drink the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we, you know, I'd like to have a society that would enforce harm reduction in all kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. Well, we're about running out of time, so what would you like to leave us with this evening? Um, well, I think there's some really positive things, and we can look at uh, some things that are happening uh, with the federal government uh, to do with incarceration, realizing we shouldn't you know, be giving people these harsh sentences for drug use, that they need treatment and that we need to have a public health model rather than a criminal justice model. So that's what I would close with. Okay, thank you very much for being our guest this evening, Dr. Catherine Van Warmer. Well, thank you so much for having me. Okay, everybody, we'll see you all next week. So good night, everyone.